This is Marginalia, a production of KMUW Wichita. Marginalia. Notes in the margin of a book. Notes, commentary, and similar material written in the margin of a book. Comments and notes which are incidental incidental or additional to the main topic. topic in the margin of a book. On the eve of his 50th birthday, Jonathan Evison decided he was going to write the great American novel. The result? Small World, a novel that explores the American experiment through the eyes and generations of many families. Irish immigrants who helped lay the Transcontinental Railroad from the East Coast, Chinese immigrants who connected it from the West, through the eyes of slaves who were forced here, and through the indigenous who were all but eliminated. Evison explores America through its greatest resource, diversity. I recently spoke with Jonathan Evison about Small World. I'm Beth Golay, this is Marginalia, and here's our conversation. Your latest book, Small World, was published on January 11th. Can you give us a brief description of the book for those listeners who haven't picked it up yet? It's just a great big shaggy novel about the American dream. I wanted to tell the story of the American experiment, and uh, I wanted to do that in the broadest, most dynamic way possible, where... uh, I give voice to as many personal narratives as possible and, and, and try to, you know, the, the idea was to get them all to coalesce and sort of weave this bigger fabric of what we call the American experiment. And um, I wanted it to speak to the present moment, but political, but not polemical, you know, so all I really had to do was have a speeding train that was doomed, you know, and now that I think about it, it may as well have been headed south. I didn't want to be overtly political. I want to speak to the moment sort of intuitively and and and, and have that just sublimate all that in the, in the lives of my characters. I don't like to try to be too timely with my books. You know, I, I just, it just feels a little too on the nose. I don't know if I did it justice. Half of the book takes place in 1850 and half of it takes place in 2019. And a lot of history in between is sort of pulled through in the five generations of these uh, genealogical lines of four different families. Since there are so many families and and characters, I'm not really going to talk. Well, I'm going to be asking more about themes and craft than about plot. I want to start with the trains. They play a large role in the book, whether we're talking about the construction of the Transcontinental Railroad or layoffs at Amtrak or that fateful ride that ties together, you know, many of the characters and the families. What I just said is probably an oversimplification. So I'm wondering if you can talk to me about the importance of trains in the book. Well, I mean, uh, just on so many different levels, you know, first of all, there's this idea of this, all the characters are moving, you know, all of these characters are sort of forced into action and, and, and the train is just symbolizes movement as well as anything for me from point A to point B. And, you know, the Transcontinental Railroad was at the time the, you know, greatest engineering endeavor that the, the young nation had, you know, ever, you know, set forth upon. And, I also needed a way to sort of encapsulate all the modern characters and get them in one place, a vehicle, if you were, to, to, to gather all these modern characters and the train served that purpose. Uh, even the title of the book, Small World, comes from this idea of the Transcontinental Railroad seeking to sort of shrink the world overnight by connecting the seaboards. So yeah, trains are just just this, this movement, this, this, this constant movement, this, this bridging of great great spaces. Just the trains permeate it in every way thematically. And, you know, it was kind of the starting point. Well, I do want to talk about the title because many of your characters referenced the idea of small world, like Worthy Warnock speculating that a transcontinental railroad would make ours a small world or, you know, a runaway slave 
who has a run-in with his former owner remarking what a cruel place the world was to be so small. Or a young man leaving his city for the first time for opportunity, how small his world had been up to that moment. So, you know, talk to me about that aspect of the title. Yes, the railroad tying this world together to make it a small world, but also how small world affected some of these other characters. Well, you know, one word that's been almost constantly associated with the book and to my pleasure is Dickensian. People call this book Dickensian and in the Dickensian world is nothing if not small. I mean, I think part of that is because Charles Dickens, uh, you know, had to write everything serialized so he could literally not reverse engineer his stories. But there's room in the Dickensian universe for coincidence as there is in mine. I had to develop a multi-layered system of uh, connectivity to make this novel work. When you have 12 limited points of view to tell one great big story, you're constantly running the risk of having your characters be off the page for 60, 70 pages at a time. And I never want to write a book that's got a persona dramatist at the beginning or a, a key where the reader has to stop and go, now, who is this again? Who are they related to? I never want to do that because that just breaks the smell for the reader. You know what I mean? I want the reader to be fully immersed in the story and not have to stop and, and use their other mental faculties. I want it to be purely an exercise in imagination. I want the reader to sort of own the narrative. And so, you know, in order to do that, I had to, once in a while, I'll rely on coincidence. Mostly that uh, the layers are like, you know, first one would be genealogical, then there's geographical, then there's experiential, then there's, you know, uh, thematic, and then finally, at times, even coincidental. Whatever I could do, whatever connective tissue I could possibly form was going to be very important to this book, really sort of central to making this book work. Because I think if I did succeed at anything in this novel, I made all the characters pretty easy to track, I think, considering how many of them there are. And I learned that in West of here, you know, an earlier novel I wrote about 10 years ago that had like 60 points of view. And I think I handled it pretty well then. But I think I, um, I think I learned a lot in that book in terms of thinking about the reader and what I was giving the reader to work with and, and really thinking about, okay, when is the reader going to have these little light bulbs go up and form these connectives? which is what I love as a reader, you know, I tried to write a book that I would love as a reader, you know, and I know that I, as a reader, I love convergences. I love making these connections. I love it when the author is actively treating me like a partner in this and not underestimating my reading faculties and letting me make these attachments myself so that I really feel like the reading experience is, is active. And so um, I think that's where I got better at juggling all these characters with this one is I became really hyper aware of creating this connective tissue that would just gently persuade the reader to remember all these other characters that were off the screen at any given time. So you mentioned that Dickens um, wasn't able to do any reverse engineering because he was published, you know, in serial form. So as you mentioned, you have chapters told from more than a dozen perspectives. Did you write each storyline separately or did you write it as a through line? No, no, I, I, I wrote it almost exactly as it is, I've switched a few chapters order, just like flip-flop, just because I want this character to come here. And the, but nothing major in that way. The major thing I did is that I removed six characters. So the novel was a couple hundred pages longer. And uh, there was nothing wrong, per se, with those characters. I removed some of my favorite characters, actually. But they, they were just not serving the whole as well. The importance of getting everybody on that train, for instance, created some just some practical issues with some of these characters where I, it's just like it was it was going to take so much effort to figure out how to get Alejo or Daniel Guzman on that train. So I, I had to kill some darlings 
But other than that, I wrote the book organically because I knew going in that I needed this connective tissue so much that uh, the best way to do that is to write it organically because you'll just arrive at opportunities as you're moving your character through the narrative landscape. You'll go, aha, this is an opportunity for connectivity because I know so-and-so I'm planning to have them in this area or uh, they're going to be in a similar dilemma that will echo this one. And so if I built it organically like that, I was able to, you know, make that work better. But then at the end, there's certain things that this is, again, why Dickens is so amazing and like the blue locket. I was going to ask you about that. <laughs> That's the final draft. You know what I mean? I saw the opportunity for it. I saw how I could completely make this work. So once you know what you're doing, the last couple drafts of the book were really about bolstering any connective tissue I could find. That was the whole idea of this book is that, I mean, really, I'll be honest, I have really kind of one theme. My books are always about connectivity and how nobody is an island. We, we can't do it alone. They all look different on the surface, but I mean, it's the same thing in Lawn Boy. It's the same thing in West of Here. Maybe my tact is a little different each time, but it's a theme I return to over and over and over because I mean, I think it's the basic question of being human. You know, we're born alone, we die alone, but we're, you know, we're completely beholden not only to, you know, the other living people around us and friends and family and strangers, but ancestors, you know, we're, we're all, we're beholden to everything that came before us. And so, I mean, that, that to me is like one of the central ideas of being human is this, uh, you know, alone versus together dichotomy. I want to talk about ancestors, but more specifically, you know, character names. Talk to me about the importance of a name, because a couple of your characters, they assumed other names. And I'm thinking here of Othello and, and Abraham Seymour. Some had names taken away from them, like Elizabeth slash Luyu. The children of Jenny and Todd had a hyphenated last name, and Walter was happy that his daughter's future wife was going to take the Bergen name. Wow. Okay. So that, I'm amazed. I think this is just really interesting that you made all those connections. And uh, I'm not sure how conscious... I mean, when you state it like that, I want to go, yes, of course. Mm -hmm, yeah, but <laughs> I'm not even really, you know, I mean, I, it, that, I find that really interesting that you found that many examples. Obviously, unconsciously, I must have been working on it because as you've just mentioned, pretty much that's an issue with almost every character. And I, I'm trying to remember how cognizant I was during the process of writing the book of that or not. I mean, uh, very clearly with George uh, when he renames himself which was a great opportunity to use a scene we won't talk about uh, very clearly with, I mean, in each instance, I was very, you know, because Jenny is, you know, and her family are proud of her heritage. It made sense to hyphenate the name and Todd being great with that. And so in each instance that you name individually, I remember very being very cognizant of making this decision about the name, but collectively, I'm not sure that I ever you know, again, it's just another point of connectivity that I, I, you know, unconsciously, I think, I don't know. I can't remember. <laughs> I really can't remember what, what I was thinking, but that's cool that you made all those connections. That's literally almost every character has some thing with their name. Yeah. And I like Brianna was a flowers and is it Layla was a yeah, Layla. Tully. Yeah. And, you know, they had so many, there were so many generations removed from that ancestral name. And even, I mean, they were women and they still held on to those names. And I found that, you know, not remarkable, but just noteworthy to me. Like, yeah, in that case, the, the name is almost like the talismans. There's several talismans yes. in the book, like yes. the, little, the figurine, the locket, these. Uh, so in that case, yeah, that that I was aware of that, that, that were women keeping the name for sure. Uh, and in, in this case, you know, I mean, in Brianna's case, 
consciously because you know why should i give up my name i did all the work here you know um yeah so golden was also a theme in the book wasn't it talk to me about that golden theme as well well it's so much a part of the american mythos i mean the golden mountain was what the chinese called the gold rush and you know streets lined with gold the golden door is what european immigrants referred to the um so yeah i mean golden opportunity for sure i mean that's such a big part of of the american ethos or mythos i should say and you know part of my job with this book was to have to subvert that where it was i believe very necessary because you know 200 years of the canon of American literature has there's a lot of romantic idealization that goes on with this idea of the land of golden opportunity or or the land of uh you know look at manifest destiny you know uh I mean really pretty much just an extension of slavery I mean this is a nation that was built on the backs of slave labor and then manifest destiny became became sort of an extension of that with exploitive labor whether we were talking about the genocide and diaspora and in many cases enslavement of the first peoples or we're talking about the Chinese immigrants who built the railroad from west to east and the Irish crews that built it from east to west all pretty much exploitive labor and so you know what I wanted to do is write a novel that celebrated that which is virtuous about the American experiment and the American ethos, but really having to acknowledge that, you know, this uh, this romantic ideal that America was built by uh, European immigrants coming to Ellis Island and so forth. All of this happens before Ellis Island, by the way. My mom is like, how come Ellis Island's not in the novel? And I go, because Ellis Island didn't exist. I mean, <laughs> people came into the port of New York at that point. But to acknowledge that the story of America is every bit and probably more about the people who are here before us and the people who were brought here against their will. And so, you know, but I wanted to be hopeful. I don't, I don't, I don't want to just tear America down. That's not what we need right now. I mean, there's a lot about the American ethos that uh, and the American experiment that is still virtuous, I feel like. But uh, I mean, we, we've made a big mess of it. We've taken arguably our greatest resource, which is our diversity, and we've devolved to tribalism. And so this novel was a sort of opportunity to show how all these fabrics, all these races and colors and nationalities and all uh, just these this diverse sweeping group of personal narratives are all tied together. And we really are into this thing together. I mean, I don't think it's uh, hopeful in the kumbaya sense, but I mean, I do think <laughs> I wanted it to have a generous spirit. Well, speaking of generosity, I read a review of Small World in which the reviewer found the generosity of others in the book questionable. I'm thinking of like the three Wong brothers, Tam, the Murphys, the original Murphys in New York City. Do you think that generosity is difficult to find? No. I mean, I would say there's people, I feel sorry for them. I I feel like I'm surrounded by, I, I just... You know, the last six, seven years has been really tough because I used to think that nine out of 10 people were just wonderful and one out of 10 was just a raging narcissistic sociopath and that 10% accounted for the ills of the world. And, uh, you know, the last six years has sort of whittled my faith in humanity down by a good 30%, I would say. But I do not find, I mean, maybe it's because I go out of my way to do generous things constantly. I'm so aware. I feel so fortunate to be where I am. I mean, I'm like, what, 39th generation peasant or something. My family never had any money. I'm living all my dreams. I live in my dream house. I get to do what I want for a living. It took me 30 years to get there. But 
you know, I, I'm constantly personally moved to do generous things as just a point of uh, duty. You know what I mean? I can barely go buy a GoFundMe or whatever, you know, or, uh, you know, I <laughs> uh, gave a homeless guy a car last month. Yeah, I, I know the review you're talking about. And I appreciated that they were like, I want to believe that. So there's hope for them. But I, I just I see generosity all around me. And, and um, I, don't, I, I don't know, maybe if you're not looking for it, you don't see it you know, one subset of the American culture who doesn't seem to believe too much in generosity are the same group of people that don't acknowledge luck or good fortune are the uber wealthy. Really, this is something I've noticed about, you know, I've been run around, you know, like a dog and pony show in front of rich people at country clubs and stuff like that. And they're, they're always so impressed because I'm what they call an exotic, you know, Jews, Catholics, and artists. They're just so really rich people like old rich are so amazed that anybody ever did anything on their own because they just wake up out of bed rich you know what i mean they're the winners of capitalism they have capital they you know somebody manages their money and they never have to do anything and i've spoke to rooms of like hundreds of aspiring writers but i've never been around a more fawning group of people than the really rich because they're like wow you mean you did it on your own you got you know i mean they're just fascinated by that but these same people do not really consider themselves lucky they consider themselves entitled to their wealth or they don't they won't acknowledge that they started on third base they always you know you'll notice that even about somebody like elon musk or something they they sort of kind of cling to this bootstrapping ideal that they did it all by themselves well you know if you're born a millionaire you can do just about anything you want you know I mean, you can be a venture capitalist and, and, you know, you can say, I want to build a rocket ship. You can do all this stuff. These are opportunities that are not available to, uh, you know, Brianna and Malik Flowers unless they make them happen or, you know, or, or, or uh, you know, Layla Tully. I don't know exactly where I'm going to that. I mean, it's a pretty uneven playing field out there. I think we know. And I think that's something that really needed to be acknowledged about the American dream, too, that the American dream, you know, there's still some truth to it. You you can make it happen for yourself, but you know, you're going to have to work a lot harder if you grow up on the wrong side of the social economic. And so, you know, through the ages, we've loved to reward like rags to riches stories that hold up this ideal that you can go from nothing to something. And they are very inspiring stories, but for every one of those, there's 80 stories about somebody who just rolls out of bed rich and, you know, really just goes to a prep school, then goes to an Ivy League school, then walks into a job at Hollywood. That was one thing that blew me away working in Hollywood is that, you know, these people would have these jobs in studios and they weren't cinema files. They didn't know anything more about films than me. They just walked out of Brown University and had a connection and got a really, you know, maybe they did an internship on Wall Street because their parents could afford to, uh, you know, rent an apartment in Gramercy Park. And then they just go to Hollywood and they have this, you know, mid six figures job out of nowhere. And it's not a meritocracy, man. Some of these people are awful. Now I'm just now I'm just grinding on rich people. I don't know how we got here. One of my favorite pastimes. I, I just. I'm hopelessly working class. I hope it doesn't, I hope that doesn't mean I can't ever be rich because I would like to someday be able to have a nest egg, but um, I don't know. I, I still have real issues with wealth disparity. And I think it comes off in the book. I understand that on the eve of your 50th birthday, you decided you were going to write the great American novel and not only write it, but redefine it. So talk to me about the canon of great American novels that you looked at and how Small World redefines the label. Yeah, I don't know if I was trying to redefine. I think I might have been trying to just define it because it's never really, I mean, when you first look at, at the great American novel and, and what, what's included in that canon, it's just such a divergent 
group of books. I mean, you've got, I mean, Moby Dick, Lolita, who's not even written by an American, The Invisible Man, Adventures of Augie March, Catcher in the Rye. I mean, it just, it seemed to just be a blanket statement about, you know, just great books, not even necessarily written by Americans. So I was just trying to figure out, like, what did I even mean? Um, to say I'm trying to redefine it sounds like hubris. I, I think I was just trying to define it. And so, you know, my ideal for the great American novel was one that would speak to the present moment, but one that would encompass everything that brought us to this present moment. And so, you know, I think some of the books that came closest for me, some of them were actually Victorian novels, Dickens, or a book like Jane Eyre. Then for American novels, things like Huckleberry Finn, Grapes of Wrath. But I think the novel that probably came closest for me to defining what I wanted to try to do with it would have been three books, which would have been John Dos Passos' USA Trilogy, which uses multiple points of view over a number of decades. That to me was my definition, what I called the great American novel. And so that's, that's what I wanted to try to accomplish. And, and really this novel was born of that conceit. I mean, I didn't know what I was going to write exactly. I just, it was more about turning 50 and really wanting to challenge myself and swing for the fences. And just so the conceit of like, I'm going to write, you know, the great American novel was just, I was just putting a big challenge in front of myself and getting excited about it because I really love a challenge. I want to ask you about something that's happening in Leander, Texas and Billings, Montana and Fairfax County, Virginia and Goddard, Kansas, just down the road from here and at other places across the country. Your book, Lawn Boy, is being challenged at school board meetings. And I want to ask your opinion about the challenges and about Lawn Boy specifically being challenged. Well, I mean, uh, to me, it's quite obvious that the entire uh, phenomenon is just a political straw man because these people are not actually reading the books before they're challenging them. They're finding, they're finding, uh, you know, paragraphs to read out of context, and this is a way for for the Republicans to uh, what they've turned it into the, is this sort of dog whistle for uh, conservative parents to say, you know, the school board's trying to tell you what we can teach our kids and they're trying to take your voice out of the classroom and and they're you know what I mean it's 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 obvious what they're trying to do they're trying to rile up a bunch of parents who if these parents are so interested well why aren't they on the PTL why are they skipping their you know parent teacher meetings why aren't they at meet the teacher night you know so uh as somebody who received a lot of death threats because of this and and just people saying awful things about my kids and blah 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 I, 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 it was obvious to me that not a single one of them read the book. I mean, they were talking about the same miscontextualized uh, three sentences that some lady read on a TikTok video. And, and still, even, even in the context that she read them, it, it's, it's, it's untrue. They're try, they, they, they glommed onto this idea that there's a, a 30-year-old realtor uh, having uh, fellatio with a nine-year-old, that's not the case. It is a it is a 23-year-old protagonist remembering an experience he had an, as a nine-year-old, just innocent sexual experience, and the person that he had it with just happens to be a big realtor now. So they took that and, and, and just twisted it around and ran with it and called the book Pedophilia, which is completely untrue. And, and to some of these people's credits, I've actually heard from them and they go, you know what, I read this book and, and, and I'm kind of ashamed to say that I, you know, I read it with the intent that I wanted to burn it. And, 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 and now I see that this is a good novel. I think at the end of the day, 
they don't like uh, non-binary, non-white protagonists who have uh, sexual experiences at church youth group meetings, and I don't blame them. That threatens a lot that is sacred to them, but this is modern realism. And, uh, you know, my book was not intended to, to shock anybody. I mean, truthfully, I mean, my job is to rattle cages on some level, and there's so many cages I wanted to rattle with that book, you know, wealth disparity, racial assumptions, all these things sexual identity, but pornography was not one of them. I did not write the book to shock anybody. And it's really not a shocking book, I don't think. I mean, I, I don't think I did anything in there in terms of preteen sexual uh, experimentation, except that maybe it's non-binary that uh, YA authors haven't been, have been doing for, you know, 70 years, 80 years. So I, I, don't, I don't, it's just a straw man. It's, you know, it, it was terrible to be threatened, but at the end of the day, hey, man, it's kind of cool to be banned. And I sold a bunch of books. And, you know, I noticed that a lot of the books have it, it, they've been undergone independent review and have been put back in the libraries. And I'm kind of like, damn it, I kind of want to keep them out. <laughs> you know what I mean? That way they got to go. If they can't get them at the library, it means they got to go out and buy them. And that's putting bread on my table. You know what I mean? God love the libraries. But I mean, you know. Uh, well, thank you so much for your time. I really enjoyed visiting with you. The novel is Small World, Jonathan Evison. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. That was Jonathan Evison, author of the book Small World, which was published by Dutton. Thanks for joining us for Marginalia. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review. Marginalia was produced at KMUW Wichita. Our engineers are Mark Statzer and Torin Anderson. Our editor is Luann Stevens, and our producer is Haley Krausen. This is Marginalia, and for KMUW, I'm Beth Golay.